This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Charles Darwin. Does he matter? Is his influence significant? The debate within our culture about origins continues, and the legacy of Charles Darwin in this debate is immense and profound. We tend to forget that Darwin's ideas were truly revolutionary, and their impact continues throughout Western civilization. Better than any other example, Darwin's hypothesis about natural selection proves the point that ideas do indeed have consequences. Two primary thoughts about Darwin for this perspective. First is a focus on theistic evolution and its implication. Marvin Olasky, an historian and editor of World Magazine, writes, Today, the overwhelming majority of American kids receive a Darwinian or neo-Darwinian education. They learn at schools and in colleges that they are just matter, the result of occasional mutations and survival of the fittest. Close that quote from Marvin Olasky. Because his ideas are so pervasive, it is impossible to merge some of Darwin's ideas with biblical Christianity. But many, many have tried. Until very recently, theistic evolution has been resisted by most people who embraced biblical Christianity. It was really not until the late 1990s that theistic evolution began to gain some legitimacy among evangelicals. For example, Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe is in effect a theistic evolutionist. And Francis Collins, pioneer in, in the genome and mapping of the human genome, also now director of the National Institutes of Health, and also a Christian, has authored a book called The Language of God. And in that book, you have a defense of theistic evolution, and it began to gain traction among those who embrace an evangelical worldview. But as Marvin Olasky has shown, it has been the financial support of the Templeton Foundation that has made the greatest impact in legitimizing the whole worldview of theistic evolution. Alasky has shown that the Templeton Foundation has promoted a rather systematic attack not only on creationism, but also on the intelligence design movement, and his evidence is compelling. So the two-pronged advocacy of the Templeton Foundation and of individuals like Francis Collins has resulted in a significant number of books and articles supporting theistic evolution as the only real choice for Christians. But, as Alasky again has argued, quote, the problem, though, is that many theistic evolutionists should rightly be called deistic evolutionists, since they believe that God created the first life form and then left the rest to standard Darwinian processes. Theoretically, a theistic evolutionist could also believe in God's creation of each of the trillions and quadrillions of mutations that led to today's world. But that would also be rewriting the Bible, and we're still left with the issue of Adam and Eve's direct creation. 
close that long quote from Marvin Olasky. And there is the rub for the theistic evolutionist. How do we factor what the Bible says is the special direct creation of Adam and Eve into the worldview of a theistic evolutionist? Mathematician Bill Dembski, who is an advocate of intelligent design, contends, quote, Theistic evolution takes the Darwinian picture of the biological world and then baptizes it. Two recent books have challenged the argument of the theistic evolutionist. First of all is a book entitled Should Christians Embrace Evolution? It's edited by a British medical geneticist. His name is Norman Devine. And it contains a series of significant theological essays as well as important scientific essays. Perhaps most important are the essays that challenge some of the contentions of the theistic evolutionist. One especially challenges rather compellingly the contention that genome mapping leads to the conclusion irrefutably that man, humanity, and the great apes share common ancestors. The essay that I'm referring to shows that is not an irrefutable conclusion. There are other explanations and other ways to look at the data. There's also an important essay by Nevins on the Cambrian explosion when many animal forms and body plants arose in a brief theological period with no proof that they branched off from common ancestors. A second important book, and one that I think is even more compelling, is called God in Evolution, written by R.T. Kendall. Equally valuable because it challenges as well many of the hypotheses of the theistic evolutionist with scientific evidence and reasonable logic. One of the most important weaknesses, as I mentioned earlier, of theistic evolution is the literal and direct creation of Adam and Eve. Typically, most advocates of the theistic evolution worldview are skeptical about the literalness of Genesis 1 and 2. The special creation of our parents is doubtful, most theistic evolutionist advocates would argue. But Michael Reeves, in one of the essays in the Nevins book, argues that it is biblically and theologically necessary for Christians to believe in Adam as first the historical person who second fathered the entire human race. This is a critical and central belief of biblical Christianity because much of the New Testament affirms the validity of Genesis 1 and 2. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 19, 4 through 6 and Mark 10, 6 refer to the creation of Adam and Eve as real historical events. Luke's genealogy of Jesus Christ in chapter 3 of his book assigns a father to everyone except Adam, whom Luke calls the Son of God. Acts 17.26 has Paul arguing strongly that from one man he made all the nations. Romans 5.12-21 has Paul referring to the sin of one man, Adam, and the sinlessness of one man, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.8-9 refer to Eve's special creation. And finally, 1 Corinthians 15.22 treats Adam as an historical person. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, to quote that verse. The Bible, therefore, treats Adam and Eve as literal, historical human beings, directly created by God, and then ties that truth to salvation in Jesus Christ. The Bible does not permit us to see Adam and Eve as symbolic figures. 
And that, in my judgment, theologically, is the most important and significant criticism of the typical theistic evolutionist argument. They have doubts about the literalness of Genesis 1 and 2. In my judgment, and as I study the Bible, it does not permit us to see it as symbolic. It is literal, meaning a direct special creation by God of our parents, Adam and Eve. They are not the product of time plus an impersonal force plus randomness. The Darwinian model, they are directly and specially created by God in his image. And I think that is an absolutely irrefutably foundational point of biblical Christianity. And in my view, the greatest weakness of the theistic evolutionist position. Now, a second point about the issue, does Darwin matter? The Darwinian hypothesis has had an impact on almost every other discipline of human knowledge. The historian and, again, World Magazine editor Marvin Alasky has compiled a helpful set of influences discernible from Darwin. Let me itemize a few of these. For example, Woodrow Wilson was perhaps the most decisive president embracing a Darwinian view of government. He argued that government, this is a quote from Wilson, should be accountable to Darwin, not to Newton. It is modified by its environment, necessitated by its tasks, shaped to its functions by the sheer pressure of life. Living political institutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. Close that quote from President Woodrow Wilson. And as a result, Woodrow Wilson began significant expansion of governmental power from which we have never retreated. And the debates that we're having now in Washington, D.C., and really, indeed, in the various states, indicate the significant power of that proposition that Wilson essentially floated for the first time. Second example. A significant number of historical works have linked Darwin's thinking to Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and even Adolf Hitler. He writes, Darwin is obsessively and obviously not responsible for the atrocities committed in his name, but evolutionary theory plus the musings about superior and inferior races provided a logical justification for anti-Semites and for racists. And that, we know, is true. A third example, Alfred Kinsey. He conducted a series of controversial studies of human sexuality in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And the results of his research, which have now shown to have been faulty in the research design, contended that adultery is normal among Americans and homosexual experiences not uncommon. For, and this is a quote from Kenji, the mammalian backgrounds of human behavior made it difficult to explain why each and every individual is not involved in every type of sexual history. In other words, what Kinsey was arguing as a result of his research and his reports in the late 40s and early 50s is that sexual promiscuity is part of our heritage as mammals, resulting from the whole Darwinian hypothesis being worked out. Two additional influences of our Darwinian thinking. Darwinian thinking was instrumental in justifying abortion because human life, according to Darwin, has no intrinsic value. Early advocates of abortion connected the thought of evolutionary progress with the unborn child's development 
and argued that babies in the womb are subhuman and of little or no value. They are just a fetus with no rights and no protections. Rights and protections totally shifted to thinking of the mother and redefined the entire debate about abortion. Finally, is Peter Singer, who is a very controversial ethicist at Princeton University, has defended infanticide in a Darwinian manner. Listen to this quotation from Peter Singer. Quote, All we are doing is catching up with Darwin. He showed in the 19th century that we are simply animals. Humans had imagined we were a separate part of creation, that there was some magical line between us and them. Singer goes on, Darwin's theory undermined the foundations of that entire Western way of thinking about the place of our species in the universe. Close that quote. So based on the Darwinian hypothesis, Peter Singer justifies infanticide. Indeed, ideas do have consequences. But perhaps the most pernicious of recent history is the Darwinian hypothesis that explains the emergence of life, including human life, by random chance, plus the impersonal force of natural selection, plus vast amounts of time. In such a model, even in the theistic evolutionary model, there is little or no room for God in the whole process of creation. But there is no room for this hypothesis in genuine biblical Christianity. God did indeed specially create the human race, and it is impossible for me to study the Bible and see life in all of its forms, but especially humanity as a product of randomness or some impersonal force or even necessarily vast amounts of time. The whole Darwinian model must be challenged based on the Bible. And to me, that is the critical starting point in, as a believer's life as we begin thinking about this matter of origins. This is a very unpopular position to take in today's world. But these two books that I cited earlier, written by individuals coming from this profession, indicate that this whole model and even the theistic evolutionary model must be challenged, and when it is, it will be found wanting. In our second and final perspective on our program today, I want to think with you about the gay revolution in ethics, an evangelical perspective. Recently, I received in my office at Grace University a single sheet entitled, quote, The Heartland Proclamation put together by the Heartland Clergy for Inclusion. In part, this sheet read, I'm going to quote extensively from this, As Christian clergy, we proclaim the good news concerning lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender persons, and publicly apologize where we have been silent. As disciples of Jesus, who assures us that truth sets us free, we recognize that the debate is over, the verdict is in. This paper goes on. Homosexuality is not a sickness, not a choice, and not a sin. We find no rational, biblical, or theological basis to condemn or deny the rights of any person based on sexual orientation. 
In repentance and obedience to the Holy Spirit, we stand in solidarity as those who are committed to work and pray for full acceptance and inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender persons in our churches and in our world. The Holy Spirit compels us in a series of bullets now to affirm that the essence of Christian life is not focused on sexual orientation, but how one lives in grace by relationship with God, with compassion toward humanity. Two, to embrace the full inclusion of our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender brothers and sisters in all areas of church life, including leadership. Third bullet, to declare that violence must stop. Fourth bullet, to celebrate the prophetic witness of all people who have refused to let the voice of intolerance and violence speak for Christianity, especially lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender persons who have met hatred with love. Therefore, this proclamation goes on. We call for an end to all religious and civil discrimination against any person based on sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. All laws must include and protect the freedom, rights, and equal legal standing of all persons inside and outside the church. And that long quote. The back sheet of this proclamation contains the names of clergy, three and a half columns of names, who have presumably signed this statement. Most of the signers are clergy from Nebraska, Iowa, and other Midwestern states. Well, how should we think about this kind of position? The Western Church, but especially the Evangelical Christian Church of North America, is facing a veritable challenge that is shaking it at its very foundations. It is a moral and ethical revolution in human sexuality, and at its heart is homosexuality. Recently, theologian Albert Moeller has written, quote, In less than a single generation, homosexuality has gone from something almost universally understood to be sinful to something now declared to be the moral equivalent of heterosexuality and deserving of both legal protection and public encouragement. Moeller also explains why the liberal churches and denominations, all represented incidentally in that Heartland Proclamation, have no problems accommodating to this moral and ethical revolution. This is what he writes. They simply accommodate themselves to the new moral reality. By now the pattern is clear. These churches debate the issue with conservatives arguing to retain the older morality and liberals arguing that the church must adapt to the new one. Eventually, the liberals win and the conservatives lose. Next, the denomination ordains openly gay candidates or decides to bless same-sex unions. Now, there are two important conclusions that we need to draw when we look at this whole sexual ethic as fundamentally changing, all centered around accommodation to homosexuality. Number one, genuine biblical Christianity cannot accommodate to this new morality. Many evangelicals have failed in so many ways when it comes to this moral revolution. Moeller, for example, correctly observes that we have often spoke about homosexuality in ways that are crude and simplistic. We have failed to take account of how tenaciously sexuality comes to define us as human beings. We failed to see homosexuality as a gospel issue. Moeller goes on, we are the ones, after all, who are supposed to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only remedy for sin, starting with our own. Close that quote. Genuine biblical Christianity never speaks of the sinfulness of homosexuality as if we have no sin. In fact, it is precisely because we have acknowledged our sin that we came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Our passion must be that the homosexual, the bisexual, the transgendered person come to see their own sin and thereby their need for Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and cleansing that he offers. In other words, we must tie this whole sexuality issue with the gospel. Number two, the Bible condemns same-sex behaviors in a comprehensive and clear manner. There's no ambiguity on this issue in the Bible. In fact, it is interwoven with the Bible's message concerning God's plan for humanity, for marriage, and for the larger society, as well as the gospel. Moeller has written, Our rebellion against the Creator is never more insidious as when we declare that our plan is superior to His plan. His plan is clearly articulated in the creation ordinance of Genesis 2, 18-25. God created Adam and concluded that he needed a perfect complement, woman. As God had Adam name the various animals, Adam understood his need as well, and thereby enthusiastically embraced God's precious gift of Eve, different physiologically, emotionally, and in every chromosome from his body. Therefore, as Genesis 2, 24 and 25 declare, God's design is that man and woman come together in a one-flesh relationship, symbolized by sexual intercourse, but also by the merging of two complete personalities into a complementary whole. The Bible irrefutably links two critical realities, gender difference and procreation, with marriage. You cannot separate these two. When you do, as this moral and ethical revolution is now doing, moral and ethical chaos result. It is for this reason that the Bible, when it discusses human sexuality, uses terms such as natural and unnatural. It does so in Romans 1, 18-32. The term natural strongly implies a standard that transcends all culture and all time, and that standard it is, of course, God's creation ordinance. Any sexual activity that violates that standard, for example, adultery, premarital sex, extramarital sex, or even bestiality, as well as homosexuality in its forms, is sinful in God's eyes and is, needed, is in need of forgiveness and cleansing. Our civilization has abandoned all commitments to that standard. In its place is a dangerous postmodern autonomy that believes whatever the individual chooses to do in the sexual area of life is fine as long as it meets a need and is consensual. We have not yet sanctioned rape. But if we truly follow the logic of the Heartland Proclamation, which even sanctions bisexuality, then on what basis would we declare that bigamy or polygamy are ethically wrong? If the standard that the Bible so comprehensively and clearly articulates is rejected, then what exactly is the new standard? We are facing a moral crisis in this nation, and it is difficult because the issue is being framed around words like intolerance, as you saw in the Heartland Proclamation. But today, it is difficult, almost impossible, to have any debate, any discussion about sexuality framed around ethical standards. So my prayer is that God will give us the grace and the enablement to represent Him well in this tragic and difficult culture we now face. As Moeller correctly observes, it is not the world around us that is being tested so much as the believing church. We are about to find out just how much we believe the gospel we so eagerly preach. And I say amen 
to Mueller's contention and his observation. This is one of the greatest challenges that the evangelical, biblically-centered Christian church has faced. May God give us the grace to phase it, tie it to the gospel, and represent him well. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.